We know that no one can succeed alone. Since the Second World War, more than 120,000 Norwegian women and men have served shoulder to shoulder with friends and allied forces. They have participated in almost 100 missions, fighting for values on which we build our societies. A bridge of trust has been built between our brothers in arms and our allied countries. Some soldiers did not make it home, and many suffered injuries. A few have been honored as war heroes. None should be forgotten. Welcome to Et Øyeblikk i en evighet. We are currently at uh, Lingelofte, a club for uh, special forces in uh, Norway, uh, dating back to the Second World War. And uh, with me tonight, I have uh, Andrew Boreen. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. Or should I call you Swede? You could call me Swede, but uh, since it's a Norwegian podcast, maybe we'll uh, we'll stick with Andrew. <laughs> That's great, Andrew. You have done uh, services for many years and, and spent a big part of your life in the military service in, in the United States. Did you have any uh, connection to the military before you entered? Well, in insofar as my grandfather actually was uh, uh, descended directly from Swedish immigrants and served in World War II. Uh, I was raised by my grandfather uh, and he had volunteered for service in World War II at uh, 34 years of age, well past draft age. And I was very inspired by his sense of patriotism without being jingoistic about it uh, and a commitment to service. He was uh, in many ways kind of a stoic in that way. And then you decided to, to join up yourself. I also had another relative, a first cousin, Norwegian. My grandmother was Norwegian, and she had a, a first cousin named Wayne Johnson, uh, who was very proud of his Norwegian Viking heritage and was an enormous man. But he served in the CIA Directorate of Operations as a case officer and had some really crazy stories about things that he would do on behalf of uh, CIA uh, overseas. And I got bit by the bug, I guess, kind of twofold. One was the possibility of service. Uh, and then the other was, you know, boy, Cousin Wayne had these amazing stories and I couldn't believe he got paid to do it and and frankly didn't go to jail for some of it. Uh, and I just thought it sounded like fun. So uh, I, I had been working in an investment bank after college for a few years before 9-11. And at the end of 2000, I applied to three agencies, uh, the CIA, the Peace Corps and the Marine Corps. Uh, and a lot of people always think that's funny. Well, Peace Corps, Marine Corps, those aren't the same. And then CIA, that's a weird one. Uh, but this was before 9-11, and it was a way to get out and engage the world. Uh, any one of those three agencies, I thought, would get me an opportunity to try something challenging uh, and, frankly, work toward uh, a freer world, enhance and promote democracy, uh, and give me some experience. And the Marine Corps, frankly, uh, just responded a lot faster uh, than CIA or the Peace Corps. And they promised you to, to experience the world. They promised me that if I could um, pass officer candidate school, and at the time there was about a 50% attrition rate uh, of those that didn't make it. Uh, they sent me to Quantico in January uh, and they said, if you can get through OCS and get a commission as a second lieutenant, we promise you that within seven to 12 months, you will be someplace uncomfortable doing challenging things with great people. Uh, and they absolutely delivered. And then this was in 2001 and, and suddenly September came. That's right. Uh, I got commissioned in August. Five weeks later was uh, the 9-11 attacks. And I was on recruiting duty as a temporary second lieutenant uh, sitting next to uh, a Sergeant Leinenkugel, another Scandinavian. Um, and we watched the, the second plane hit and we watched the, the building fall. We evacuated the federal building that we were working out of as recruiters. And 
yeah, it definitely changed the trajectory of my life. I thought I would join the Marine Corps, spend a few years in service and return to finance. Uh, as it turned out, I, I did leave the Marine Corps after a few years, but I stayed in support of U.S. national security for a little over 20 years in the private sector and also uh, in and out of government. Did you transition between the government and the private sector? Has that been very useful for you or has been a, or is it more a confusing period? Uh, I've actually found it really helpful. You know, I mean, there's, there's this expression about sharks that uh, a shark only lives if it keeps moving to get the oxygen through its gills. Uh, they don't stop and sleep. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm a shark, but I definitely see that I gain so much by meeting people uh, from diverse backgrounds, by experiencing different cultures. Uh, and I think that my transitions between the government and the private sector, and I've also been affiliated with a number of universities uh, teaching things like transnational organized crime and how to combat it uh, and intelligence studies. And in all of those different kind of roles, I learn new things about different stakeholders. And I think it gives me an ability to help be a better connector and a better activator uh, you know, in, in kind of my own journey. So I have found a lot of diverse experiences extremely helpful and bringing the best things I learned in military service to the private sector and some of the best things I've learned from the private sector uh, back into government has been really helpful. I would like to take you back to Iraq because that's where you did most of your service in the, in the Marine Corps. How did you meet the, the, the front line or, or the, the combat situation in Iraq coming from civilized world back home? <laughs> That's um, well. I will say this: I part of why I joined the U.S. Marine Corps uh, was that it was an amphibious service, and I thought it would be fun to go around on Navy ships and visit cool Mediterranean or Pacific ports. In uh, nearly four years of service, I only got to spend two nights on boats, which, uh, given my very diverse Scandinavian heritage, uh, I think it hurt the little inner Viking inside of me to be so far removed from the ocean. But uh, But in truth, the, the threat environment had changed and the needs of the American people, uh, you know, I, I have to be honest, looking back, I'm not super excited about uh, having invested so much in Iraq when Afghanistan and Al Qaeda was the threat and had committed 9-11. But we all were in the same division working for General Mattis, uh, first Marine division at the time. Uh, he became Secretary of Defense. He's really kind of a legend in the, in the US uh, military and national security community. But uh, as a leader, General Mattis made it very clear our responsibility was always to each other first and to the American people. And when the American people's government sends us on a mission, we execute that mission on behalf of our nation uh, and on behalf of the international partners that we work with. And I went to Iraq in about January, a few months before the invasion started, March 19th. And on March 19th, with the other members of the 1st Marine Division, we crossed into Iraq on a major combat operation uh, that took us on uh, the this gets to the, the Viking roots piece. We did do the longest amphibious in, uh, invasion and combat movement, I believe, in world history from uh, Kuwait to Baghdad. Uh, and then some of the elements pushed forward into Tikrit. So I am proud of it. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge the fact that there is some... Um, inner moral, moral turmoil about having participated in something that I kind of look back on and say, hey, from a foreign policy perspective, that might not have been the best strategic move. But I have lifelong friends. Uh, I'm proud of that service. And it was, I'm not going to lie to you, it was, uh, it was quite a shock. We were anticipating up to 70% casualties in some of the battalions. Very fortunately, that did not happen. Uh, we, we did lose lives of friends 
Uh, we lost lives of colleagues. We have many, uh, many more wounded because the interesting observation I have about major combat in 2003 is that the what they call the golden hour for getting a casualty extracted, uh, the percentage rate that we were able to do in 2003 from what it was even 30 years prior in Vietnam was incredible. Uh, so many more survived than would have been killed uh, given prior technology. And so that, I think that's an untold story of the cost of combat. The combat can be just as intense, but the killed in action numbers are much smaller. And I think that means then we have many more survivors who have experienced really some pretty, either you call it exciting, because uh, it is exciting. Uh, you can also call it terrifying, because it could be terrifying, uh, but also I guess you, you see some aspects of human nature that you didn't expect to coming from a civilized society. How did you experience combat? What did you feel? How did you react to it? Well, so, so Marines are, uh, a, a, as a whole, uh, famous for being a little little different than perhaps the other armed services. Uh, it, it's a very, uh, I was a military intelligence officer, but it's a very infantry centric culture. Uh, and it actually was kind of funny because when I got orders to go for the buildup in the invasion of Iraq uh, at first Marine division had many colleagues and myself included were like, Oh man, that's great. You're not going to miss the war. Right. Everybody thought it would be like the first Gulf war in the nineties where it would be over in three to four days. Uh, and I would have gotten to be a part of it. We did not at that time know that it would turn into a, a multiple decades uh, long counterinsurgency campaign. But so in many ways, I was very excited. It was the opportunity to do what I signed up to do a little differently. Right. I, I had hoped to be doing amphibious raids out of boats and uh, and be traditional amphibious Marine Corps. Uh, but it was an expeditionary journey. And uh, so it was a mix of excitement and terror uh, during that buildup and going on the deployment. I also as a military intelligence officer, had some insight into what our fears were on those casualty statistics and our fears that if Saddam Hussein and uh, any of the Republican Guard uh, were to, for instance, use VX gas, it could have been horrific for us, uh, but we would have had to keep pressing. Uh, and so I wrote a will. Uh, I was married. My wife was pregnant. And I was also struggling in many ways at that time with at 20 some years old, the fear that this might be my last time on U.S. soil as we got on those airplanes uh, to Kuwait. And then each day would be this kind of recurring thought that this might be the last day I see the, see the sun. Um, and it was a mix of terrifying and excitement, and it made every single moment of every day matter. And, it, you know, ever since, it's been a little hard to kind of grasp that same level of excitement, even during the buildup. And then certainly through the movement to Baghdad uh, and, and uh, the excitement of the invasion, particularly the heavy uh, weeks of that movement. Yeah, it's, it, I will be honest. I've never since experienced the same level of living in the moment and feeling so alive. I think it's probably in some ways like uh, I've heard heroin addicts talk about heroin. And, and I can see why people like us sometimes are attracted to the level of excitement that it can bring. We had to talk about other uh, forces that you are cooperating with and being an allied of the Norwegian armed forces. Do, do you ever interacted with, uh, with the Norwegians uh, on any missions or operations? 
Uh, yeah, I bumped into Norwegians uh, actually in a lot of places in the world. N nice to be here in Norway with Norwegians. One of my favorite Norwegians, uh, Magna Rodal, uh, is is a, a legend in your uh, special forces and special operations community. He's also a legend in the American special operations uh, and special forces community. People people know Magna and uh, and in NATO. So uh, so I just want to I want to give a shout out to my buddy Magna uh, and. I, I also want to say thank you to you, Tom. Uh, I want to give another shout out to my friend Asbjorn Lusgard. Uh, Asbjorn and I have been crossing paths, I mean, over a decade. Uh, I've bumped into him in some pretty interesting places. Uh, and he spent some time as a liaison to U.S. Special Operations Command. And, and I would bump into him in Tampa. And then he went to the Marine Corps uh, Command and Staff. So I bumped into him there. But my favorite story of bumping into Norwegians actually happens uh, in the deserts of the Middle East. So it's actually, a, a, like I said, I'm diverse. I have uh, Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish ancestry. Uh, and uh, when I was uh, a group chief at the National Counterterrorism Center, I took a visit to one of our Middle Eastern uh, sites where we have a, a pretty healthy, and, and I was a, I'm a bureaucrat, buddy. Uh, I want to be very clear. I'm not a tough guy uh, like the Special Forces fellas and the Lingaloft members. Um, but as a bureaucrat and an uh, executive leader, I went and visited uh, U.S. and allied troops uh, from NATO and then also beyond NATO, uh, working on a counterterrorism mission uh, against Salafist extremists. And I bumped into, during one of my briefs, some Norwegians, and they were with some Swedes. And they found out I was from Minnesota and they saw that my nickname was Swede. Oh, are you Swedish? I'm like, well, uh, by descent. And, blah, blah. And, then, oh, and I was also Norwegian and Danish. And oh, you're Norwegian. And I, yeah, do you guys eat lefse? And yeah, they eat lefse. I said, oh, and I made a joke. I was like, hey, it must be really hard to find uh, lefse potato pancakes and cinnamon out here in the desert. And the Norwegians lit up. And, they, oh, and the Swedes lit Oh, hey, we have a, a secret stash. We oh, you'd be surprised. We have Lefsa. We don't leave without it. And I was like, oh, really? And um, and I kid you not. Uh, so after that briefing, I moved on to some other meetings. And I don't know if it was a half hour, 45 minutes later. Uh, one of the Norwegians uh, in uniform uh, runs up and he's like, hey, 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 sir. By the way, they should never call me sir because uh, I, I don't feel worthy. Right. Uh, especially because I'm a bureaucrat. And these are guys that are living downrange in the desert and some men and women. Uh, but they hand me frozen Lefsa with sugar and cinnamon in it. Uh, and thought, oh, sir, you should let this thaw out and eat it. But I do want to say, I, you know, that one is really poignant to me because here were Norwegian forces uh, working with partnership with Swedes, with uh, other, not NATO proper, but other members of the NATO alliance and on a common mission, but also really to show the importance of the human bond, right? Uh, I will never forget that moment of kindness and, and bonding uh, and also that, that, you know, the lightheartedness, right? And, and the camaraderie that we all find uh, out on a mission, um, I think it's really important that we do share those stories and bring them back to our home nations uh, because it makes for a stronger free world alliance. And oftentimes those that work in kind of bureaucrat jobs, like, like what I have mostly done uh, in offices, aren't out. And, and it's really important uh, to see that exchange of goodwill. And I think that's the Norwegians in particular, because I think of the Gunnarsons to be legacy and the really commitment to resistance and freedom. I, I've just always been extremely impressed uh, with the Norwegian forces. And, and I've also participated in a number of uh, exchanges, uh, kind of, again, as a civilian supporting. The Norex exchange is the longest standing troop exchange between any two militaries. And it's Norway and the United States, and it's the Minnesota National Guard. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so the Norwegians have always been wonderful partners and second to none on the special forces front. 
but I want to say the importance of conventional military force. The first combat uh, commanding general of, of a NATO unit, unit is a Norwegian woman general who started as a basic enlisted soldier and participated in that exchange to Minnesota. So I just think there's a lot of really great things to be proud of uh, for Norway. Uh, and I think because of that, right, who is the longest standing military exchange in the entire U.S. Department of Defense? That should tell you something about how important this alliance is and how important uh, these relationships are. So the, the thing is that nobody's good alone. You, you, have to, you have to have good friends and good allies to accomplish something. 100%. In counterterrorism, I used to talk a lot and, and I can't take, claim credit for this, but you know, there's another General Nagata. I have to give a, a credit to General Nagata for saying this kind of thing because he's smart. And the kind of two components of counterterrorism are extremely important, comparative advantage and burden sharing. The United States is big, but the United States cannot monitor and assess threat and then act on mitigating threats uh, in, uh, on these transnational issues like terrorism, right? And so it's really important that we burden share and other free world partners contribute and help. And when we do that, we do that as equal partners, uh, right? The, the individual soldier, the individual law enforcement officer, the individual analyst commits exactly the same, whatever country they're from, right? Um, and so that's kind of my, my, my first piece on, on friends. But then when you talk about allies, I love that word allies, because I think an ally is someone who in crisis is obligated by bond to show up and support and defend. And uh, so I think it's really tough in life to move forward, whether you're an individual uh, or even nations without very strong friends and, and real allies. Can I ask you if you have... During all your year of service, experience the one moment, the one split second that to you will last for uh, eternity. Uh, you know, it's funny. I have, I have many. Uh, I've, I've had the good fortune of having uh, done a lot of really amazing kind of pinch me things, to, more like Forrest Gump. You, you know, I, I stumble into stuff and there I was. Uh, so um, one of them, though, is I have a photograph of it, um, but there was a burning oil well. Uh, like a like a pipeline on the way into Iraq, and it was March nineteenth or maybe the twentieth in the morning. I can't say the exact date, but I distinctly remember because one, I hadn't slept in days. Uh, I was hungry. Uh, we were chewing Copenhagen and uh, drinking Mountain Dew, the last ones in the can, because now we're moving into this combat operation. But this this oil well was shooting a flame across the road that all the Humvees, all the trucks, all the tanks, all the amphibious tractors. Uh, of the entire 1st Marine Division and any support we're going to have to drive under. And the cloud was making the sky dark and black. And I remember looking at be like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. And it was shooting the occasional little spark of oil. It was burning off the natural gas and making this black cloud smoke. But those little spurts of oil would shoot periodically over the road. And I remember I saw, like, I was so terrified. I would never, ever in my right mind, drive under this like flaming oil well. And then you could see that here's this convoy really slowly inching through it. And it occurred to me that every other single Marine, sailor, soldier, airman, or support person that was with us on this movement was also driving under that uh, flaming oil well. And that... I, I, like it, that is really my experience because it was terrifying. And then the, the, the kind of unity of watching other people be brave kind of, I think instilled some courage in me for the moment. And 
if so if you had to ask me what's the thing i remember i remember that oil well i remember the black sky i remember the terror and i remember that just being part of a moving unit and knowing that everyone was sharing exactly that same burden gave me the power to move forward i want to jump a bit in time because what are you doing today because you have you have your big um, long experience with, with everything and and you're retired from the from the service today you are also you, you haven't laid down your arms yet you you are still <laughs> still participating in 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 some sort of security business i guess i haven't laid down my keyboard uh and microphone at this point at, at this age those are the, that, that's what i get to do so um yeah no it's it, it's been uh amazing i i got to finish uh, uh with some really great jobs in counterterrorism counterintelligence and then working in our office of the director of national intelligence which kind of helps coordinate all the us intelligence agencies and that was a great, I kind of view it as a great parting uh, thing. And now I'm a former government employee uh, and a former intelligence officer. And I work for a threat intelligence firm called Flashpoint, which is it's worldwide. We have about 400 employees uh, and we focus on monitoring threat groups to help governments and uh, large financial institutions and big tech companies um, see and react to threats. Uh, to help them avoid, you know, uh, avoid really significant risk to their people, their assets, uh, their reputations. And so I'm kind of still involved in security. And uh, just as a quick example, pinch me, Forrest Gump. Uh, just yesterday, I was in Stockholm uh, and I had the great honor of meeting the former prime minister, Carl Bildt. Uh, and the prime minister and another team of folks are working on reforming some Swedish intelligence issues and leveraging open source intelligence, what's publicly available. Uh, what can commercial companies provide? Back to your earlier question on public sector, or private sector. And and so I don't know if I was helpful, uh, but I really hope I was uh, because a lot of that conversation there as well is in the importance of friends and allies and building international partnerships uh, and public-private partnerships that defend the free world and defend our values. Because that's isn't what it's all about, isn't it? At the end of the day, it is about values. and And I think that's where we can always unite as you know, and, and again, this is so great to be in the Lingaloft with the Gunnar Sanstavi uh, Foundation thing uh, uh, happening this same week is Gunnar Sanstavi spent a lifetime after his service educating the public about the need to be prepared to face down threats to our values. And what are those values? Those values for us are we defend human rights. The individual human being matters. We believe in the freedom of speech and in the freedom of religion uh, and these really core fundamental values that we can always unite around as friends and allies. Uh, and that does mean that there are some things that we oppose and we oppose fascism. We oppose uh, a, a vitriolic form of communism, whether it comes uh, from Putin's cronies in uh, the Russian Federation or uh, the Communist Party of China uh, and their aggressive expansion. We can actually identify value systems that don't align with ours. Uh, it could be Salafist extremism, which is intolerant uh, of anything that is not within their worldview. Um, and so I think that's, uh, maybe that is the key thing, that values are really what unite us uh, and we can put it together into action with person-to-person -person trust relationships. To defend the, the freedom that we all enjoy uh, comes to the cost. Absolutely. And and you personally have have your inner demons that you have been struggling with. You, you told me earlier that you you've been fighting alcoholism. You have PTSD, and and how do you how do you 
cope with that? And and what did you what did you do to to remedy it? Yeah, that's boy, we're we're, we're cutting to the quick, as they say. Um, yeah. So so in my case, and and I want to be very clear for any of your listeners, the vast majority of military veterans and combat veterans come back, have some adjustment, and they move right back into civilian society, and everything is great. Uh, some of us uh, have combat exposure. And it can either, in my case, kind of accelerate my alcoholism uh, and my, you know, kind of excitement seeking behavior. Uh, through, you know, I couldn't find it in the world. You know, I, I grew up playing football and rugby and ice hockey, and I used to repossess cars. You know, I got a lot of excitement, but I couldn't replicate what happened and what I got to have in that uh, combat experience. And after I left the Marine Corps, I didn't have a tribe. And I really started drinking heavily. You know, I kind of thought I was partying, but I wasn't. I was uh, I was trying to meet an unfulfilled hole inside of me. So so back to that point about how how vast majority don't have that issue. I mean, what if it's eighty percent don't, ninety percent don't? Well, through no fault really, and I, and this was an important part for me. I needed I want to destigmatize this for others that might have some of these symptoms that I had. I was having symptoms in 2004, 2005, and 2006. That's years after my return. I had night sweats. I would have nightmares. I would have uh, these haunting images of a few things where I thought I made some bad decisions, right? And, And I would tell myself I was a coward. And I would say some really, really mean things to myself, my kind of inner voice. You talk about demons. And I just, it came to a head in 2006. And I have not had a drink since. I have sought help. I now tell people that, that I've struggled with some of these PTSD symptoms, but I had to go to inpatient treatment. I had to ask for help. I had to learn some new skills. Uh, and one of, you know, we, we talked a little, I think, earlier about TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures. And those TTPs for me included, again, ask for help, finding a tribe of people that also were in this kind of minority that had some challenges, but wanted to move forward, right? And, and that has empowered me now. I've moved completely sober from alcohol and any uh, mood-altering drugs uh, since 2006. But uh, I've done it with help from, uh, there's a number of 12-step groups that exist. Uh, you know, even non-veterans can use those. Within the military community, uh, the Veterans Administration in the U.S., Gave me a lot of help on counseling for PTSD and some groups to get into where I, I bumped into, you know, former flag rank officers and former PFCs and, and Lance Corporals. And what it taught me is that I wasn't alone and that it was okay for me to need that help and to get that help. Uh, and so, you know, I'm very happy to say that 17 and a half years later, you know, I'm, I'm still doing the things. It's just for me personally, it requires a little bit of help. And the most important piece of all of that for me was without realizing it, I had a spiritual crisis. Something happened spiritually that I, this is just me telling my story. Something happened and I thought God turned God's back on me because I had done some things. And maybe it was, I saw the things and I didn't act, right? And the, the, there's a more sophisticated answer to that. I've heard uh, military chaplains now use the word moral wounding. But I had to reestablish my connection with a higher power of some kind. And for me, I got a lot of help from a former Marine who is uh, a Lutheran minister. And uh, he, he was amazing. He said, one, getting sober is the best thing you ever did. Welcome to the club. 
and two, uh, start exploring your relationship with God, whatever your understanding of God is. And this was a Lutheran minister. You know, he didn't say you have to do it this way. You say these prayers. But I had to reconnect with a higher power. And I still do. I mean, on a regular basis, I have to spend time in prayer and meditation. And frankly, I think a lot of the skills I learned in recovery uh, for mental health have been part of these new TTPs. I learned great things in the military. I learned great things in private sector. I learned great things from all these mentors and leadership. But it is the spiritual connection that helps me tie my personal understanding of values with my daily life. And uh, I, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but, uh, but anyone listening, I just want them to know that struggle with symptoms can be treated, but we have to ask for help. And many of us that are military veterans or our national security veterans, you know, or, or police, uh, you know, the, the tough guy, tough women, right? Here in Norway, you have an amazing women's special forces component. You're really uh, world beating uh, women in combat arms. And whether you're a man or a woman, you may find yourself struggling with some of this. And I just, if I could encourage anyone to ask for help who needs it, I promise that life gets better on the other side and anything we're struggling with can be addressed with the help of other people and with a connection to a higher power. So it's not just only been uh, fighting crime and, and terrorism. You, you also have a, a life afterwards that sort of uh, try to wrap up the whole, your whole career. And also working with different agencies in, 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 in that respect. How can you cope with that? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And I think, again, for anyone who's listening, one of the big components for me, again, after that 2006 crisis and recovery uh, was in addition to kind of spiritual connection and getting help and, and some of these other aspects that brought a tribe, so to speak, back into my life, being of service has become really important. Trying to find ways to give back and help support others. And so, so, so a couple of things I'm involved in that, that I'm, you know, kind of honored and humbled to be a part of, uh, one of them is the Special Operations Association of America, SOAA. Not because I'm a special operator, but because I'm so grateful uh, for the, the really unique contribution that Green Berets make in America and their special forces or SOF uh, colleagues from NSW, Marine Corps, Special Operations Command, AFSOC, et cetera, and, the, and then the women and men that support them. So, so because there's kind of a unique contribution there, I'm, I'm honored to uh, try to help support. Uh, their, a lot of what SOAA does is support transition back to the private sector uh, or back to civilian life uh, after service, in addition to supporting folks and families uh, when uh, their loved ones are deployed. So that has been quite an honor. Uh, to to support people that I look up to, some other activities that that I really uh, really love and support is uh, one is called the Global Soft Foundation. Uh, our friend Magna uh, is involved heavily in that, uh, as is a fellow named Stu Braden. Uh, the two of them created a NATO uh, soft liaison unit and built a lot of human connectivity in a very important aspect of all of our collective defense. And so, uh, you know, the Global Soft Foundation, I joined it as soon as they kind of started that nonprofit because it was, again, committed to building international alliances and partnerships. And it does great work uniting the public and the private sector uh, and keeping kind of formers engaged in addition to helping navigate uh, people that are new to the community. So, so that's been pretty great. And uh, yeah, so, so I've been in a very lucky position that I have a great private sector job. Uh, I've got some nonprofit activity that I get to, to help with. Um, and, uh, I guess it's, for me, it's just been a great expanding kind of experience of network of friends and hopefully, uh, building new allies, uh, personally, but also, 
uh, internationally. So it's been, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a really great career. I hope, I hope I got a lot more uh, left in me as a private citizen. So the, the heritage of, of the U.S., the region, work together do, um, just do, not only in these days, but also during the Second World War. You have, you have uh, also done some, something to commemorate that. Yeah, uh, actually, and, and, and kind of public-private partnerships come into play here as well. My friend Magna Rodal, who's CEO of Maxim Defense here in Norway uh, and, and, and former Special Forces, uh, and I had met uh, and, and had a conversation in Tampa during uh, an international soft week event. And we kind of hatched a scheme. And here's the thing about guys like Magna and, uh, and Asbjorn and, and your Norwegian Special Forces alums. We, you, you say you're going to do something, they actually do it. Uh, and so Magna and I talked about doing something to honor the 50th anniversary of this longest standing troop exchange in all of the world and also in the U.S. Department of Defense. And uh, we had had a conversation about, you know, because uh, Sweden and Finland had Finland had not yet been admitted to the alliance, but that Sweden and Finland had made bids for NATO membership. And there's a massive Scandinavian, Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, Finnish uh, diaspora population in Minnesota. Uh, hey, let's do a 50th anniversary event uh, in Minnesota. To, to get Norex some exposure uh, and involve these diaspora populations and also kind of explain what is the threat emerging uh, on the eastern edge of Europe that's bringing uh, you know, these allies together. So, uh, yeah, I think between Maxim and Flashpoint and Magna's efforts uh, and the, the, the Norway house in Minnesota, our, our friends there helped bring in the defense attaches. So we ended up with embassy uh, uh, participation uh, from the Norwegian embassy flew in from Washington. Uh, we had some some private sector folks. We had uh, McAllister College hosted us. Uh, we had uh, another really cool uh, Norwegian-American uh, history piece is the 99th Battalion, uh, which was a special battalion of American soldiers who had Norwegian ancestry, could speak Norwegian fluently and knew how to cross country ski in order to help fight the resistance uh, against Nazi fascism at that time. So. I got to be honest, it ended up being a much bigger success than, than uh, frankly, I could ever have done. Uh, and it all, it all stemmed from uh, a conversation uh, over a cigar in Tampa. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think it is such a great example of why alliances matter and why comparative advantage matters, right? And, uh, yeah, and, and Norway needs allies, but America needs allies. Everybody, you know, all of us that share those values, we can't possibly defend them. If we don't have citizens willing to serve in the military, uh, if we don't have uh, societies that embrace and support, they don't have to serve the military, but it is important that uh, the profession of arms and the, we talked about law enforcement and some of these other professions in the security space, they're not all knuckle draggers. You know, a lot of sensitive people, very thoughtful people participate in those roles. Yeah, I just, I, I think the Norwegian one is an amazing example, uh, especially with the Gunnar Sons to be legacy. and. Gunner's personal commitment, again, after service, educating the public that we, we do, we need to remember what it is we fight for. In Friends and Allies, we hear the stories of some of our closest supporters, reliving with them some of their most intense moments. Et øyeblikk, en evighet.